Hey, what's up, guys? It's Dan from United Q. It's Wednesday, which means we have another awesome podcast to get you over hump day. I'm here with my co-host, Barbecue Forte. Hello. And we're brought to you by ProQ, Barbecue Gourmet and Smoke with Check, our awesome sponsors. ProQ is dedicated to providing you with quality smoking products and top-notch service and free advice for beginners to pitmasters, and you can find them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under ProQ Smokers. So if you're thinking about buying your first smoker or looking to upgrade or even looking to pick up some epic accessories, check them out over at Max Barbecue. And Barbecue Gourmet is devoted to promoting real barbecue and supplying the UK and Europe with top championship winning barbecue rubs, sauces, marinades and accessories from around the world. Not accessories, is it? Yes, and accessories from yeah. the United States. Cool, they do those as well. And around the world. <laughs> you can find them and you can find them on Twitter and online under Barbecue Gourmet. So regardless of how you cook, whether it's on charcoal, wood, gas or electric, the real taste of barbecue can be yours all year round. I really do like the like the chicken tenderizer. Or oh yeah, I want one of those. Actually. Commonly known as the chicken fister, and uh, never heard of also <laughs> also they do like the chopping boards, chopping boards yeah. and all stuff like that. Oh yeah, all right. Yeah, I let you off. Okay, and also smoke with shacks. Epic, love them. Great smoking wood chunks, chips, dust, whatever you want. Check them out. Smokewithshack.com. I'm really into pear wood at the moment. All right, no one cares about your pear wood. Yeah, uh, well, they do. Anyway, so. Uh, with on today's is amazing. <laughs> it's my favourite chicken smoking wood at the moment. Yeah, what's your favourite smoking wood for goat? Ooh. Because on today's show we have James Wetler from Cabrito Goats. Hello, James. Hi, how you doing, guys? Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, awesome. Glad to finally get you on the show. Yeah, and you picked a. I think you picked a uh, a good a good time to do it because we can talk about Metopia, Metopia, which I know you guys were gutted to miss, and it was just amazing. Yeah, definitely. We just followed all the social media online, watching all the videos, and just which really is like the worst like thing <laughs> missing. I was going to say, yeah, to I don't know whether it made it better or worse. Yeah, definitely. I was like, yeah, oh my I did God. go. I did go to this year's Glastonbury for the first time in ten years, and I just pretended it didn't happen. I think you guys probably should have done the same thing. Yeah. No, I haven't, I haven't seen any of it. In fact, it's part of the reason I'm so determined to go every year is because the first year that we did it, or the first year it was on, sorry, we didn't do it. And I was sitting on holiday in France with my girlfriend doing what you did last weekend, looking at the, looking at the social media. And Neil Rankin did the taco, did the, yeah. the oh, pit yeah. smoked goat and the, and the taco. Wow. And I just thought to myself, what on earth? For the first time in my life, I thought, what on earth am I doing on holiday? I should be right there eating <laughs> that taco. And so I, this year... We did, our, we did it ourselves. We did um, shawarma last year, where they built a um, they built us a firebox with a load of rotisseries on it that we had to hand turn. And um, we took, I think we took fifteen goats and had them butchered, into, and then banged out flat like minute steak. And then we marinated them in sort of yog, bit of rafal hanout and uh, and coriander um, and. Uh, sort of lemon zest and we left it for 24 hours and you thread it onto the you thread it onto the spit essentially and then every sort of four or five bits of meat we put a fatty bit of breast in pushed it all together and we had five of those over the firebox nice man it was yeah it was unbelievable it, was, it took about four hours to cook and then you could just slice it off like you see the really cheap ones in the dirty cabana beautiful and it just <laughs> the whole thing kind of just melds together and we just kept basting it with you take the one of the things, I'll say this now so I remember to say it, but if you guys ever barbecue goat, one of the really important things to have, I think, is the kidney fat and render it down and just have it with a brush, the brush as you go. Um, and that, I think that's a good thing to do with any meat you barbecue is have some of the fat of the animal 
sort of rendered down to a liquid. So if you if you're tearing it off, like when you do a whole pig or something, you're tearing it off and the meat starts to dry out, you can just pull the fat back in. And I mean, that's the fat from it is the thing that makes it moist. If you remove that, you can put it back in when you have it. If you have a little tub, so we had we just had a little box and a paintbrush and painted back on. We did that again. Yeah, it sounds yeah nice. it was amazing. Do you, do you add anything to that? Do you put any like spices and that into that as yeah, well? Yeah, well, actually, last weekend at Utopia, we did we did it with um, Ramel Scully and 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 Yotam or and some of the guys from from um, from Nopi. And those guys had um, it was a shawarma spice goat they did this time, and we built we didn't build it. The guys from Utopia come along and build it, and a breeze block smoking pit um, that was about twelve by four foot, maybe a bit longer, and it had space in it for sort of 10 goats. You wrap, you wrap them in chicken wire, but before you wrap them in chicken wire, you marinate them with a, like a shawarma spice, which is like I said, sort of uh, sumac, uh, cumin, caraway, um, and grass hanout, and loads, loads and loads of different stuff. And then put them in the smoking pit and do them at about 120 for about nine hours. Um, and that marinade we mixed into the into the fat. So you actually had this sort of gloopy, fatty marinade. I mean it's just a it's just a body to carry the marinade, but also giving it all that flavour and all of that uh I put the moisture back into it. So it was yeah, I mean I whenever I mean I don't know what you guys like when you cook at home, but I like Normally, I buy animals in sort of halves and then dice them up um, and put them in the freezer and render the fat down from whatever it is. So we usually just have a pot of fat by the by the cooker. Beautiful. So whenever you like, whenever you're cooking bacon, you render all that fat. Down, you just pour it in the pot and it's just a mixture of sort of fatty stuff. So yeah, there Sounds you go. Perfect. The ex chef telling yeah. you that any any chef worth their salt will tell you that fat is flavour. Having oh, it around. So yeah, that's the, the meat. The meatopia thing was was pretty good and for us. Um, I mean, duck and waffle did a full goat Cuban sandwich there as well. Which I mean, we we sort of tried to get goat meat into a sort of into the food chain, into the sort of public consciousness. And something like meatopia is just, I mean, it's gold for us. The photographers, DJ Barbecue talking about our goat meatopia, or Dan Thirty from. Uh, Dr. Watson talking about it, or Yotam Othelengi and Mel Scully talking about goats. Really, that one Instagram photo for us is worth Because all we try to do, really, is convince people that, that goat is a, is a brilliant thing to add to menus and, and is, is massively versatile as well, which is, I think, the thing that people often miss about it. I mean, from pit smoking it to, I mean, we've just talked about Metopia, and those guys are pit smoking it, smoking it, put it in a pool, put it in a pool sandwich. We put it on a on a shawarma, you know. I mean, that's just those are some of the extreme things you can do with it. But it just shows the versatility. I think. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Andre uh, Lima Deluca and Neil there at the Big Grill in, in Dublin did goat as well. They did like a salt and pepper goat. That was really nice. Uh, that was cooked over uh, yeah, the cherry wood. That, yeah, that was that. really really nice. Uh, and yeah, then, I think cherry, I think I think that's just sorry to interrupt. But no, I no. think I, I, this is uh, just as I remember stuff. I think the fruit wood, if you're talking about smoking or something like goat, if you use oak, you just get, it's just too dominant a flavour. So I think using cherry or we use apple at um, Utopia is kind of where you want to go because 
it is a much more delicate flavour, I think, than people expect. Um, but we can talk a bit later about why that is. Awesome. Cool. Well, I was just going to say then, I mean, we could even touch on it now. For people that haven't tried goat before, uh, what, what what could you compare the sort of flavour to or, or how would you describe the flavour to them? Um, people always ask me this question and it's really, really hard to answer because it's so tasty, so subjective. Uh, so, they, the carcasses look more like venison carcasses than they do lamb carcasses because they haven't had, in the same way venison hasn't had thousands of years of selective breeding to turn it into a meat animal, nor has goat. Lamb has had thousands of years of selective breeding to make them have those big ends for the big, the big fat legs and the really broad shoulders. So they're, so they're, they're lean. And I think that, that's reflected in the flavour. I think it is a, it's, it, there's a sweetness to it that you just don't really get, I think, in lamb, because lamb, lamb can be quite fatty, almost to the point of sort of, Jackie, for want of a better word, kind of overpowering, you know. I don't think that. I don't think goat has that. I think goat is much cleaner, um, sweeter, and it's almost musky, like almost sort of, you know, you get those sort of high-end flavours that are almost nasal. I mean, yeah. that's that's where it is. That's where it is for me, I think, and, it, and it's, it's much more uh, subtle and delicate. And I think that's why you have to use the sort of the sweeter wood, the sort of the apple and the, uh, and the cherry are great. I mean. If you go if you go down the oak road, I think you ended up with a you just all you'll taste really is the flavour of the oak. So, which is no bad thing, but you won't you wouldn't be getting the best out of your you wouldn't be getting the best out of what you're trying to cook. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the the first sort of times I I experienced sort of goat. To, to eat was uh, sort of like your Caribbean goat curries and stuff. Mm. That was the sort of first yeah. time that I, I came across goat as a meat and and started to to enjoy it was was via those sort of Caribbean uh, and. Uh, goat curries, I would say, probably that yeah, was the first yeah, sort of time. To me, that's like the only way I've had yeah, goat those, currently. Those are those are great things. I mean, the, I'm a big fan of global food, and I I love a Jamaican goat curry. I love some of the goat curries that come out of the Middle East. But those are using, and they've all got their place in sort of wider food culture. But those they're using a different ingredient. Those dishes will be made with older goats. So in this country, that usually means uh, the coal mammies from the dairy that have, that have fulfilled their usefulness in terms of milk uh, milk production. Um, and then they will be sold on at quite a cheap price. And a lot of them end up in sort of both Asian supermarkets, and that's where you get your uh, goat curries from. And those are great, but that isn't, with, that isn't what we're selling. You can, that is the equivalent of goat mutton. And in a lot of cultures, mutton is interchangeable between goat and sheep. Um, and what we sell is the lamb version of goats, um, young animals about seven months old, about 22 to 24 kilos dead weight. Um, and that's a very important distinction because of the, because the flavor profiles of those two animals are very different and the sort of, the way they behave when they're cooking is completely different. The, the reason you're talking about curries and sort of slow cooking is because the older animals are much tougher and they're much more flavorsome. So they're, so they're much more, um, they're much stronger in flavour, so they'll they'll take the sort of the stronger, more punchy things, you know, that jerk flavour, which is quite powerful. The the older goats will stand up to that. Um, so what we sell is, as I said, it's kind of the lamb version, which is much younger. Um, and uh, it, 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 honestly, it's a completely it, it's a completely different product. You're, you're, 
and then you're not really comparing the same thing. Um, but as I said, that's not to say that, the, that they're bad in any way, it's just they're very different. Um, so there's, there, and there's a lot of reasons why this country has never eaten sort of the younger goats. Um, and I can go to that a little bit if you want, and it's quite a long, and there's kind of some anthropology in it, and you know, it's quite a long, but I think it's fascinating. I mean, yeah, well, yeah, definitely. Yeah, like, let's let's t- let's get let's get in there. Yeah, I think like it was first brought okay, to our attention well, probably by like when Jimmy and Jamie did it on the TV last year. They they went. I in was supposed did... to be on that. I was supposed to be on that, and they dumped me for Orlando Bloom. Can you believe it? <laughs> they, that Orlando Bloom. I was supposed to come into the, the the edge of the pier thing and talk about goats, and end up putting Orlando Bloom on. He must have just swanned in and nicked my spot right at the last minute. I can't believe it. My ego will never recover, I don't think, from being upstaged by Orlando Bloom. Um, but no, I mean, that, that's, that's uh, Lizzie, who does Cotswold Kidney, and I'm delighted that she got that sort of recognition because I know that it meant that she sold almost everything she could produce, which is brilliant for a small producer. So I was really pleased that... Because as we've, we've kind of... We were, we were the first people really to do the, the kid go thing in any sort of large scale, so it's nice to see someone else could sort of get a bit in the limelight and, and sort of draw more attention to it so it doesn't feel like it's just us all the time because too much get bored of this thing um, <laughs> so yeah going back to why the um, going back to why the we've never we've not really got I mean it, it just seems insane to me and it always has been insane to me that humans have been eating goats for 10,000 years and it's not something that we consider a staple of our diet in the UK and you know that's part of the reason why I was so convinced that if we that if we could get it off the ground, it would it would eventually take sort of to a wider audience to become and become more popular because there can't be anything inherently wrong with eating them if the rest of the world does. Just and, and genuinely, the rest of the world eats goats. We are we stand out like a sore thumb in our culture that we do not eat goats. And I mean, I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to sort of food history and food politics, and I was really interested as to why and. When you dig into it, you kind of, it goes all the way back to the sort of eighth and nine, I'm going to, you know, you're going to tweet this to one of those Emmy Joles that, you know, one of the teeth out of the glasses. You know, <laughs> this is really dirty. But it goes all the way back to the eighth and ninth century, wherein uh, the UK's wealth was built on the wool trade. So we were a nation of, uh, of sheep farmers because the wool was worth more than the meat carcass. And if you were a peasant farmer in the sort of early Middle Ages, you would definitely choose the, if you wanted to have something that provides you with milk and then eventually with meat, you would choose to have a sheep because the, the fleece was so bad. So we never got to a point where we were having large amounts of goats in the country. And furthermore, um, there was a period, sort of a few hundred years after this, that continued for about 400 years of enclosures where common land was closed off by to make me feel like a left-wing firebrand saying this, but, you know, the, the, the sort of the landed gentry became what they are because they closed off common land, took it away from the common people and, and stole it, basically. And that meant that uh, you now had areas of enclosed land. And if you, want, if you want to farm something on enclosed land, you do not want guns because they are browsers and they will look around for their food and they will, they will move through land. Whereas a sheep, you put it in a field, It'll just stay in there as long as there's enough grass. Um, so there's, there's sort of a well, that anthropological and political reason why we don't have a uh, history of goat farming in the UK. So, I mean, that for me is fascinating. And 
it was only really that it turned up in sort of the older goat fashion in amongst immigrant communities, and only really in the last 30 years has as uh, more and we've become more um, sort of cosmopolitan in our in our food choices that goat's milk and goat's cheese have been started to make started to make on a sort of larger commercial uh, basis in the UK, and that has led to the problem that we saw, which is you have the, the commercial dairy herd in the UK now is about 100,000 uh, milking nannies. So that is, and they will more often than not have twins. It's normal for them to have twins. So not all of them will. Um, so you're probably talking about 40,000 billies being born in the UK every year. You need to keep the, the female, the nannies, the female goats need to be kept in lactation, which means they need to be pregnant once a year in order to keep the, in order to keep the milk flow going. I mean, there are some cases where they do things called extended lactation and you don't milk the goat. You don't, the goat will continue to produce milk if you, if you milk it, but that's a rarer process than keeping all the animals yep. um, pregnant every year. And in order, I mean, and nature decrees, you get a 50-50 split. So out of those 100,000 nannies, if most of them have twins, we're talking about, at a conservative estimate, 40,000 billies born a year now. And up until we came along, they were in an overwhelming majority of cases, euthanized a few hours off because they were considered just a waste product. I think we, when we first started um, Cabrito, we used to call them a, a byproduct. And actually, that's wrong. People still think of them as a byproduct now. And that, actually, that's not correct because a byproduct is defined as a, as a uh, useful, um, as something, something useful derived from a process that is meant to produce something else. It's not the primary thing, but it's the useful thing. Whereas a waste product is defined as something that can't be used. And actually, these billy goats are a waste product. And I think there's a lot of reasons why that's wrong. And I, part of what my girlfriend and I, who's a partner in business as well, of course, we just couldn't get our heads around the fact that something was born and had no value. That, on a quite fundamental level, just seemed very wrong to me and to my girlfriend. So that was really the spark that lit, what can we do about this? And then you sort of get down the rabbit hole of why we don't eat goats in this country, and then you realise that's obviously really strange because the rest of the world does. And so all this stuff starts falling into place in my head um, because we ended I should probably go to how we ended up with goats in the first place. We had a bit of land in Denver that we were looking after. We were looking after some friends and we wanted to get pigs because I was working at River Cottage at the time. And if you want work for River Cottage and you get a bit of land so you didn't buy pigs, right? So, but next door said, please don't get pigs because you're trying to sell a house or the other thing you don't. And then this guy said, Will Atkinson, who produces uh, cheese for Neil's yard. And, and he had just built a goat dairy and didn't realise he was going to have a problem with the business. That goes to show how, how detached we are from the food that we make. The guy has built a goat dairy and hasn't realised he was going to have a problem with yeah. You can't expect the man or the woman on the street to sort of make that connection. If a guy building a goat there, he doesn't realise it. So, you know, he said, he, in his own words, he said he had this horrible realisation um, that he had this problem. And all of so we got these four goats and we put them on the land and I was working at River Cottage at the time. And when it, when they'd done their job of clearing the land for us, I phoned up the head chef at the time, Tim Madden, and said, would you mind if I put them on the land? And he said, no, of course not. And they sold really well. And they start the first night they outsold the beef, and the second night they sold 
good places and work my way up to sous chef and knew that the kind of menu that those places I'd worked in had would maybe accommodate goats if you could get the product right. So all this stuff started to fall together in my head. Um, looking at these goats, realizing there was this problem, you know, my 12 years of chefing experience and knowing that there was this big market that I could maybe tap into because I had this sort of inherent knowledge of it. And then we went to Italy to the cheese festival in Bra, which I recommend to, I mean, most of your listeners will be barbecue fanatics, but they'll also be into food. And if you're into food, chances are you like cheese. And there's this town called Bra in northern Italy, which is about 40 miles outside Turin. And they basically, it's, it's a town of probably 20, 20, 20, 25,000 people, and they shut it down for a weekend and fill it with 400 cheese producers from all over the world. And they all give away their products for nothing, so you can just go and taste it. And it is the most amazing experience. There's also a whole part of it for wine tasting, and a whole part of it for beer tasting. So right, I'm just, booking it for next year. Done. Sounds amazing. Honestly, <laughs> I, honestly I, it is the most, I mean, Meatopia is great, but the Bra Cheese Festival has not been stopped off only because it's like, it's, it's, it's like the whole of Wandsworth being taken over by a cheese festival and from all over the world. It's the most amazing experience. <laughs> cool. And, and we went there and on the way home we popped into Shearing Market, the open air market Shearing, which is my favourite place on the entire planet because it's just this, Piedmont produces the most amazing food and we went there in sort of late September and you had the end of all of the summer stuff, which is like the Samsano tomatoes and the green beans and the velocity beans, and, but also the beginning of the autumn stuff, so you have all the squash and steps inside of your fist and just... And we were standing in this market and we went into the sort of butchery hall and there was one part of this butchery hall that was devoted just to selling goats, kid goats, capretto, they call it, in Italy. Uh, and I stood there with my girlfriend and said, look at that. And she said, that is a goat. And we looked at it and it all looked beautiful and it was all sort of amazing. And, and I said to her, I turned and said to her, we have imported all the food in this market, everything from the tomatoes to the steps to the beans to the, you know, all of it. There's pasta makers, there's fish, all of it. We eat all of it in our daily or weekly or monthly diets in the UK. And the one thing we don't that over there. And I just thought that was the final nail in the coffin of my chef's uh, career. Because I thought, if the Italians eat it, then we should. And you know, I, I worked in places with Italian influences and love Italian food and I love French food. I just thought, that is it. That is right there. There is this huge and growing problem of you know, the, the ethical yeah, problem of, of Yep, all the all the bellies getting slaughtered first. every year. And you couple that to this global cuisine and the supply that is available and the and the, the change in the British public's perception towards food. I mean again, getting quite nerdy about it, this country's food culture was absolutely decimated by the Second World War and rationing and we lost so much of I mean so many breeds of pigs during the Second World War because everything was just like, you know, we lost so much of our food culture that it's taken us to get back on our feet. Um, and it's only really since sort of, there was a point in the early 90s where the Eagle and Farrington opened and John opened and the River Cafe opened and then you've got people like Hugh talking about food being well looked after and sort of out of that sort of 
period of, of the reinvention of British food, we're now at a point where, we, I mean, if you think about what we eat weekly, you went through every day, how much of it is actually indigenously British? Very little. We might have a shepherd pie or, you know, we might have, I don't know, a pork chop, but we all eat pizza and hamburgers and noodles and, you know, pasta and all of that stuff and, you know, Chorizo sausages and all that. You walk around the market, it's all familiar now, and it's awful all over the world. Yeah, yeah. So this one thing that stood out, and you guys too, barbecuing, I and mean, you take you take your influences from all over the world as well. I mean, it's deep south in America, all the way through to sort of Canberra ovens and all that stuff. So given all of that, we just thought there was a massive problem and growing problem because the UK goat dairy industry is growing at phenomenal rates. And there is this new, it's almost, and it felt at the beginning, it felt like a new ingredient. We were going to chefs with new ingredients, and that is just bizarre. Because we're going to be humans and eating goats for 10,000 years, and it's been part of our diet, part of our culture as humans for so long. Um, but I was reading about this guy called Uzi the other day, who was found in the Italian with an ice floe, and he died, I think he died 3,000 BC, and they found bits of goat protein in his stomach, and his sheep were made out of goat milk. And I thought, man, that was amazing, you know? And then we just spent 15,000 pounds trying to prove to the food standards agency the goat was fit to eat, but it turned up in this guy's stomach 3,000 years ago. Like, <laughs> well, so I mean, yeah. So, so that's kind of the, the genesis of Cabrito was, you know, completely unintentional, all the way from having a few goats in a field in Devon through to a moment of clarity in a, you know, a marketplace in Turin. And it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been a chef in London for as long as I was because other people have tried to get goat meat off the ground in the UK and failed. And I think failed because they didn't have they didn't have enough um, they didn't have enough of a market to get a toehold, whereas once they started selling it to Quo Vardis, Duck Soup, Oka De Lupo, Anchor and Hope, Great Queen Street, you know, I, I was selling to 20, maybe 25 restaurants within six months. And that meant that it was enough for us to go back to the farmers and say, keep more of these things alive, and we were able to grow the market at the same time as grow the, the national stock. And that meant that farmers had sort of confidence in us because they could see that we were selling the product keep more of them alive. Um, and then we started getting in newspapers and, and he turned up on TV a couple of times. And I think another reason why we had the success early on that we had was because when I'm telling you that it's good then you might believe it. But if someone like Jeremy Lee, who's been one of the best chefs in London for the last 30 years, is taking it, putting it on his menu and then tweeting amazing photographs of it, it's no longer me just saying Good. It has that sort of. Um, it's got a status it a attached to it. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. It, I mean, and it has a kudos attached to it that I can't that I can't give it myself just by yeah. telling. But anyone, anyone selling go, their own things always going to say how great it is. You yeah, need other people out there using it and trying it. And I don't know. Also, at the same Absolutely. time, like when there's something new on the scene that has that sort of uh, bravado of like people, mm. people like just buy it because it's something new and just something unique but then at the same time it's this is something that actually has survived that it's it's not just this new fad of of uh, of goat meat people are actually still still on their menus people are 
loving it. People are still buying it. It's it's very popular and it's just growing. Yeah, it was really. I mean, I've been I've been a chef in London and watched things like pig cheeks come and go and ox cheeks come and go and you know there was a point where everyone had pig liver and you know, everyone had uh, chicken liver parfait was one that I've, I've been through as well and I, so I've seen I've seen trends come and go in cooking and learn a lot in that you know any, every time a trend comes along you master something then it goes away and something else comes along you master that it's a good way of learning stuff but I was really I was really keen a couple of things what to happen one for it to be a trend generally which and now it makes me laugh because almost every year or almost every season I read the new hot trend this year and soon is going to be and someone's been writing that article for the last three years. So <laughs> that pleases me because it means we're still around. We haven't yeah, yeah. out. But I also didn't want it to become a London thing, you know, and people outside of London, yeah, places like Manchester and Liverpool and Brighton and Bristol, to say, you know, it, it, it just feels like a cool London Chevy thing, you know, that horrible word hipster, get attached to it and then, you're, then everything's lost, you know. So I worked really hard on selling it to places in Bristol and we sold to Princey Red, rest in peace, now gone. Uh, we sold to Bell's Diner and we sold to um, the Lido and the Epicurean. And these guys, I mean, the Epicurean have been great supporters of us um, as has Freddie at the Lido. And so and we, I went up to Manchester and we supply a couple of places up there. Mary Ellen was the first person to put it who had the Ornbury, another rest in peace restaurant. I mean, uh, that was a great place that and Mary Ellen will go on to do wonderful things in Manchester I'm sure um, but she put it on the Great British Menu and that was the first time that it had been on TV and it sort of since we started and that was a big thing but I was really keen for it not to be a trend because yeah, no. those trends come and go and I wanted it to be a, be more to last more now because a trend might have sorted out the goat problem for a couple of years but then the goat problem would have come back yep. it needs to be sustainable in, but in I think a when you go, like we spend our time like uh, going around all these sort of food festivals and and stuff like that, and and goat now is is just so so common actually mm. in them. And people, like I said, like I mean, over in Dublin, Neil and and uh, Andre were doing the uh, the goat. I'd say Meatopia sort of it seems like goat was almost at the star of the show at Meatopia. It sounds <laughs> like, and and like we're seeing it in Bristol, Grill Stock. I mean going all over even down in Plymouth at like a, a food festival I've seen people uh, cooking, cooking with kid goat and stuff like that so it seems like it's, it really has sort of uh, seeped out through the sort of uh, I would say sort of veins of, of Britain and people are cooking it everywhere and it is, it is becoming more and more common yeah and, that, and that's I think that is a um, for a long time in it's very easy to feed like farmers that put the animals down and say that, you know, they just don't care about the animals and they, you know, they look at that big nasty farmer knocking that video on their head. The fact that it's taken off in the way that it has shows that there are farmers out there that want to find a solution. So those animals have been reared by farmers. They've not just been, you know, those animals have been reared typically for meat. The farmers have taken a big risk because one of the inherent problems with goat meat is that the billies, because they're the product of the dairies and the nanny provides the product of the dairies in the milk, when you have a newborn billy, you have to feed it a milk replacer. And that milk replacer is uh, usually branded like a lamb or something. And it can cost about a pound a day. So you can have a, a 10-week-old billy goat that's got 70 or 80 pounds worth of milk inside it. And that 
an end result and doesn't have a market for that meat, which is why there is why we've had to build the national stock up to keep the demand because the animals wouldn't exist otherwise. So that I mean, there's a lot of people out there doing it that aren't me, and that's a great thing because that means there are a lot of farmers out there that are looking for a solution and have seen that there is this growing market for goat meat and have said, I'm going to stop knocking you blue on the head because I didn't want to do it in the first place. I just couldn't afford not to. So the minute a minute a market pops up, the farmers are agile enough and smart enough to recognise the opportunity and take these animals and rear them to me. So I think I think the farmers get a really hard time in the, in the media and to a certain extent people just believe there's a lot of bad farming practices out there. Not my experience. My experience is that farmers want to do the best for their animals because they all know that happy and healthy animals produce better milk, produce more milk, produce a better quality milk, or they produce a better meat product in the end. So now, for the last 25, 30 years, the British dairy industry has been uh, has had a problem with Billy Goat. And it's, 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 some of them have decided not to talk about it. Some of them are very open about what they do with it. But in the end, it's not a great story that all of the or an overwhelming majority of the Billy's born on a farm are euthanized at first. But now they've got a different story to tell, and that story is they've recognized that there's a market for it, and they're doing everything that they can to promote it, and there is now, now a good news story. I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, through educating people that that is what's happening and the fact that, I mean, again, like you said, I mean, the reasons why we don't eat it and also, again, the, the fact that the rest of the world, uh, going back to almost 3,000 years ago, have all eaten goat. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a no... It, once you start educating people of these things, it becomes a, a bit of a no-brainer as to why, why wouldn't we be eating goat and, and wh- why not? So, James, yeah, I mean, James, one, when of the, do you... one of the challenges... One of the challenges in that is that because they have the milk powder, they end up being really expensive. So they are, I mean, they're, they're the price of organic land. They're sort of twice the price of your sort of Tesco's own brand, growing from New Zealand. Uh, so they are they are an expensive product, and that's one of the barriers that we have to get over. And yeah, trying to explain to people why it is expensive, um, because people have this sort of folk memory of goat being. I don't know, sort of scrawny and smelly and tied to a post with a bit of string and eating hats and plastic bags and, you know, living in eating trolleys and whatever can get teeth on that kind of thing. And actually, what we're producing is a very high-quality, well-farmed, well-staffed, well-reared uh, meat animal. And it's just, we're just trying to change the perception of goat a little bit so people will accept the fact that it's more expensive and maybe make that choice when they're, when they're purchasing and accepting that it's more expensive because if you're if you're eating goat's cheese or if you're eat, or if you're drinking goat's milk, then there is a I'm not, it's not your responsibility because I don't I don't think you can really use that kind of you can't put people on a guilt trip about the shopping choices that they make because not everybody can make the same choices. But maybe instead of buying lamb every time you go to buy something for your roast, think do you know what? I'm part by buying by buying goat's cheese or by buying goat's milk, I'm, I'm contributing to that system that produces these waste products. So maybe I should buy a goat shoulder or a, or a goat leg, maybe once a month because that way I'm making that industry much more sustainable. And that is what I think Cabrito is trying to do. Cabrito isn't trying to lecture people or Cabrito isn't trying to you know, force people into doing things it doesn't want to do, but just saying 
there are consequences to your buying decisions and you can offset some of the bad ones by buying goat ones. And if you think about the the sizes of the industry, I mean, we kill 200,000 lambs a month on average in the UK. And we're talking about 40,000 billies every year available going to the meat. So not everybody has to change their eating habits and not everybody has to eat goat all the time. But if everybody bought goat once a week, the billy problem would go away. You know, and it would it would take care of itself. And then you've got a wholly sustainable, from a sort of environmental standpoint, you've got a wholly sustainable um, goat industry, which is amazing. I mean, the the holy grail of, of farming is dual-purpose is dual animals. Yeah. is an animal that produces great milk and also great meat. And the goat meat, the goat industry has got one of those stories on its hands now. It just needs to make goats more popular. And things like things like Utopia and podcasts like this and articles in newspapers are just the way that it's going to happen. Um, we've mentioned Neil a couple of times in the start of this podcast, and I have to say that Meatopia, the first one, when I was... That goat taco changed what the burrito did. That goat taco, and I, <laughs> I kind of hope Neil's listening to this, but I kind of hope he's not at the same time. I don't want to sound like I'm playing smoke on his ass, but I looked at that thing <laughs> on Instagram and thought, hang on a minute. We, that, that, that taco, I thought that is a product that would sell nationwide. And before that happened, I didn't really believe. I thought we could make a living selling. I thought we could solve the billy problem by putting goats into the catering industry and that would take care of the problem. But when he did that taco, I thought that is something that has got mass appeal. Yeah. And Cabrito should try and get itself into the supermarkets yeah. because uh, into the supermarkets and to and to and to create its own products for resale because that taco proved to me yeah. that that there was a that you could do stuff with goats that went beyond... Yeah, it was like, hold on a minute, we could have something here, this could really... Yeah, totally, absolutely. And I was sat on a... So I was sat in a garden on a recliner in France thinking, Neil, you son of a bitch, you've just changed what Caprito <laughs> does. You know? and, and then, about three months later, I went into the smokehouse where it was on the name and I sat and ate it and I just thought... And that is a real... I mean, whenever I eat the goat meat... I mean, I did it the other day in a jar kitchen in a public garden... Um, where Richard, I've known Richard online through Twitter and Instagram for about four and a half years, and never really met before. He's really good in the best there. And he put Storley Goat Stew, which is the farm that we got the goat from, on his beetroot and a rack of goats. And I've been waiting for four and a half years for somebody to put those two things on a plate together, because that's the farm where it started, and the goat meat, which is part of the goats. Um, and there's nothing better for me. And I, I had this sort of moment sitting down and eating because I can appreciate it from, from two angles I can appreciate it from I know the hard work that's gone into getting that goat into that kitchen through me, not just me building up the industry but the farmer that farmed the animals and the slaughterhouse and the logistics to get in there and the delivery and all that had to be created from nothing and then you put it into the hands of a chef and I know the process as well and I've been following Neil on Instagram for long enough to know that he did a tour of the deep south and met masters and met some great places. And that goat went through a thought process in Neil's head and came out of a taco. And then I sit in the pub and 
logistical disaster than it is to run the goat business. And you put all that together, and I sit and eat it. And I just think that is a that is a real moment for somebody like me, and I'm sure other producers feel the same about them. Because for being able to see it from both sides, it's a real it's a real moment now for, for someone like me. But that taco really did change the way that that Fabrizio thought about what it could do, and it was the moment that we really made a pitch for people. Yeah, so you t- you've touched on it there, like supermarket-wise. It isn't a common thing still, is it, to see goat meat in the supermarket? How, how, what what no. are you doing to work towards that? And how, when do you think we'll expect to start seeing more goat? Because you're saying people should buy it once a month, but it's not, it's not a really easy thing for people to do at the moment, is it? Yeah, I mean, we're in a cardo, which yeah. is um, sort of the first step towards having it on the shelf in, a, in an actual physical supermarket. Um the process of getting it into a supermarket, I mean, I would not do it again. In fact, I had a conversation with my girlfriend not very long ago about would we do this whole thing again, given that if we knew how it turned out, we probably would, um, because it's just been... The process of getting it into, into a supermarket probably cost us anywhere between forty-five and £55,000. Because there are so many things that you need to do in order to take a product from a slaughterhouse to get it onto a supermarket shelf in terms of not just the simple stuff like photographs and promotion shots, all that involves food styling and a photographer that charges you both charge two hundred pounds a day. And then you have to do the design of the packaging, which is another two hundred pounds a day. Um, so just getting the packaging together probably costs the bacon. Um, and then you have to do things this is what I was talking about about the when that bit of goat meat turned up in its stomach and they We've been eating it 3,000 years ago. Uh, we have just done food analysis whereby you take a piece of goat meat, you send it off to a lab, and they, they analyze the microbiology of it. And it took us about, I think it's about eight or ten times to get it through. They tell you that it's not fit for human consumption if it doesn't have a certain shelf life. And there's some quite complex microbiology going on inside goats because they're ruminants. Um, and that microbiology feeds through to the meat. Um, which means it has quite high microbiological loads in comparison to stuff. You get those nerdy energizers out again, and here we go. And it has quite a high microbiological load in it um, in compared to something like uh, beef. Um, and that means that it, it has a shorter, a shorter shelf life. So we had to prove that the food density is actually edible to human consumption because no one else had ever done those tests before. So that, each one of those tests cost about 800 pounds, and we had to do that for. Um, just to prove that you can put it on the supermarket shelf and people aren't going to die on the end, which is insane when it's in sort of the world's most deep red meat. It's just insane. So then we had to do, uh, then we had to find a packager and a distributor and uh, a butcher, cutter, um, and then we had to do the promo, and then we had to do the product trial run, uh, and obviously without a market for the product trial run, those just end up going out and sample. So you add all that stuff up and it gets up with the sort of 45, 50 grand. And that is just to put one, that's just to put a bunch of products on the shelf. Mm-hmm. You know, that, without all the effort that goes into building the national stock up to a point where you've got enough to supply the biggest online supermarket in the country and keep your record business going. So there's an awful lot of challenges involved in all of that. Um, and yeah, it's an expensive process. And you've what done it now, you've up, done the hard work, so now you're... Yeah, and that's what <laughs> that's what Ocado did. Ocado basically sent up a flare to all the other supermarkets saying that goat is now a supermarket standard product. 
hopefully we'll start reaping the rewards of that pretty soon. Um, but that, there's an interesting uh, point in that there's probably a lot of small producers out there like me that would never have been able to do that. But how many other products are there around that are kept out of supermarkets because it's so insanely expensive to get your product on the shelf? You know, we walk into supermarkets to think, wow, look at all these, all this choice. And that's not, everything that's on those shelves has been selected by supermarkets for us to buy. You know, we have an illusion of choice. The choice is only made by the food buyer. So that we were in a position, because we built Chibrito up to a point where Cardo came to us, that we thought it was worth the investment. And there must be hundreds of producers out there doing great things that will never get an access to that higher market. Yeah. Because there's this walled garden created by supermarkets only let product in, yeah, and even then, I mean, it's still a massive gamble because, you know, you're not, once you're on a supermarket shelf, you're not guaranteed that spot forever, you've still got a performing sales, which is, you know, why I never say no to any publicity, I just keep banging the drum to go because I know that if we don't keep selling it, then it'll be pulled off the shelf, and then you've got all this, these goats all over the country on farmers that aren't going to suddenly stop eating just because they're not on the shelves anymore, so it's a very, it's being in a supermarket, being in the supermarket is not a gold end of itself. It's uh, the fluid, the fluid sort of system. You have to keep working at it and keep justifying your place on the shelf. So uh, that's so why we a, keep doing Ocado would be the place that you would send people now if, if someone's at home listening to this podcast and goes, right, I want to cook some goat. How are they going to do yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, that, if they're in, if they're in uh, a, if they're in a place that Ocado. Uh, if they're in a major city, then yeah, go for it. We've got um, got six products on the shelves. We've got chops, uh, diced mints, and the bone and roll shoulder. Which then, if you unroll it, just when it comes in, it's bone and rolled. If you cut the string, lay it out flat, and just marinate it, maybe with like bay, dry, like dry rub, bay leaf, um, fennel seed, chili, lemon zest, uh, rub it with olive oil. If you just roast that or just throw it on the barbecue, you can cook it in 15 minutes and then just slice it really thin, wrap it in a taco or wrap it in a burrito. Um, or, you know, with some, serve with a, some beans or however you want, but it's not a difficult thing to cook. What what I do, one of the things that I'm quite sad about with the, with the Ocado is that a lot of it has to be, you know, and it's not Ocado fault, it's just the supermarkets tend not to sell bone-in products. So, for me, shoulders sort of slow roasted with the bone in, that's just amazing. But you can get those plenty of online sort of environments on farm. But like I said earlier on, it's not all about frito and all about what I do. There are plenty of small uh, small goat farms all over the country, as we've talked about with the people down in Plymouth, and there's guys up in Northumberland that are rearing goats. Um, and find your local supplier, you know. I mean, frito does what it does, but it doesn't have to all be up your sort of small local producer and buy a whole carcass and fill your freezer up and have some fun butchering and there's plenty of tutorials online you know there's plenty of okay if you're I mean your sort of podcast listeners are probably a bit more adventurous than your average sort of supermarket shopper and if you're going to if you think right I want to try and butcher a whole carcass taking a goat carcass at 20 22 kilos is actually a really good place to start because although it's a commitment it's not as big a commitment as buying a 90 kilo whole pig or a 50 kilo side of pork or a whole whole shot a whole sort of four uh, four 
quarter of beef or something, if you bought 20, 22 kilo kids, you could butcher that with plenty of tutorials on, uh, online and it would fill up a sort of small chest freezer and you'd have some fun playing around with it and just get confidence with butchery and cutting and you'd have your sort of whole shoulders you could do in, uh, like the whole shoulders in a green egg. They're just, they're just fantastic and they're really simple. I really, really simple dry rub or a really light marinade. Um, and the legs are the same. The legs are just with the legs. It'll take a bit longer with the bone in. Um, the, easiest way to, the easiest way to cook the legs is probably just to bone them out, butterfly them, slash them, dry rub them, and shove them on the grill. You know, there's no. One of the things that we've tried to do is to try to take away the mystery of goat. When we first started, we were always asked how we're cooking. We still get asked quite a lot now, and I think the. The answer to that, in a nutshell, is you cook it however you cook that. But for me, because of the sort of the cuisines that it covers, it's much more versatile than that. I think it still has has enough of that sort of goatiness to stand up to the heavy flavours we were talking about earlier on. So it still does really well in tagines. It still does really well slow cooked. But also, like I said, you can just chuck it on the grill when you're taking the bone out and it's done. Yeah. So I mean. Like, I mean, due to sort of lamb's fat content, we tend to cook lamb for a little bit longer and, and tend to break it down. But I suppose like most of the, the goat cooks then tend to be like sort of hot and hot and fast sort of stuff then would, would suit goat better. Yeah, depending on what you had. I mean, if, you, if, if it's got a bone in, then obviously usually slow and slow if you've got the bone in. If you've got the bone out, though, I mean, these are young animals. So when you, if you take a lamb shoulder have all that inherent fat in it. If you just if you burn that out, you'll get a lot of fire underneath the barbecue. You just don't get that with goat. Yeah. Much leaner. Um, which is going back to what I said about having that pot of fat quite handy. Um, but if you're if you're we used to supply the supply the magazine to the street and he used to take the he used to steam out the uh, the legs. So he'd break the take it off the bone and break it into its constituent muscles and make it look nice and neat and then you can and he used to cook his grilling. He just basically bang it on, really hot grill, really fast, and take it off, but don't rest it. And he always found that because, because the legs don't have the back content of the lamb legs, if you rest them, it'll start to toughen up. But if you, you cook it medium rare, don't rest it, just slice it really fast, send it on, then it will eat much better than if you rest it because it starts to dry out. Um, but again, that's just inherent in the meat. That, that's not a... I mean, now we, we, we tend to we tend to cover tenderness. You know, people talk about tenderness and meat all the time being the thing. Well, I think a lot of what sort of the, the Turner and George guys have done with the Galician beef is that the tenderness is less important now than it used to be. But what is more important is flavour. And how to get the flavour out of stuff? You chew it. So, you know, if you're talking about sacrificing a bit of tenderness for, uh, for a bit more flavour. And that's not a bad deal in my, my No, no, 100% by me as well, 100%. We used to, I mean, we used to get stuff sent back when I worked for Great Green Street, and people say, you chewy, right? You've got molars for a reason, you know? You're a, you've, got, you've got molars in your mouth to chew stuff, you know? Chew it, because that's where the flavour comes from. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, it, that it still does my head a little bit that people equate tenderness to quality to the point that they do. I mean, they're... There are, there are times when tenderness needs to be covered, but not always. And you, sometimes you don't get the best out of the 
so coming up, you've got you've got an event, uh, Goatober, coming up, and yeah, and yeah. Can, can we like, touch on that and, and just explain what what that is and and uh, yeah, well, let's just let's just dive into it. Well, we first saw it about when we first started Caprice, um when I was doing sort of marketing, playing around the internet and trying to find stuff about goats. And there's there is a there's a there's a movement in the US. It's much more than just a business um, heritage foods. And I first heard about them um, when I read a book called Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Sawyer, which I would recommend to anyone. It is just a, a name writing. Jonathan Saffron Fair, he wrote Everything is Illuminated and won all the literature prizes in the world because it's a wonderful book. But he he uh, wrote this book and the premise of it was that he had just had a son and he lived in Brooklyn 10 years, 10, 15 years ago. And he, he, was, he is a vegetarian. The reason he's vegetarian was because he couldn't find he didn't want to buy meat that was part of the sort of industrial complex of America. He didn't want to buy caged meat. He didn't want to buy uh, mass-produced meat. He didn't want to buy anything that was grain-fed, that kind of stuff, because he had an environmental concern about it. And the premise of the book is, can I make the choices for my son and make my son a vegetarian, or does he need to grow up and make those decisions for himself? And the way that he got around this was by researching the U.S. food market. And in that, he discovered some terrible things, as you would imagine, but he also discovered some brilliant things. And one of those brilliant things was heritage food. Um, I recommend that book, Eating Animals by Jonathan Zappenfer. Anybody that he meets should, should eat it because it's just fantastic. And he found this, this group called Heritage Foods, who are almost the last bastion of well-reared, well-looked-after food, sort of a, a blend of slow food and sort of the river cottage that you saw. Um, and they connect farmers doing well-reared, well-looked-after, sort of properly properly farmed animals with restaurants uh, throughout the sort of New York area. Um, and there's a woman who works with them called Erin Fairbank who dreamt up this idea of Goatober because she recognised the same thing that we did, that there was a growing problem of billies in the, in the United States. Because they have a much smaller industry than we do, so there's probably 30 cheesemakers uh, sort of up in Vermont and and in the sort of northern part of New York State. And I think she got sort of 50 cheese producers together, got them all through their billies, and then went into New York and got 100 restaurants to one goat dish on their menus for the month of October. And we, as soon as I saw it, I thought I would love to do that. But we didn't really have the network to do it at the time. And only now, really, and my, we've employed a... Blake from Dining with PR, who does our PR. And I sent her an email sort of late night in March saying <laughs> the, the title of it was Goatober. No, seriously, Goatober, with a link to what it was and just said, I would love to do this. And Hannah, being Hannah, went, let's do it. That's a brilliant idea. And she went to work on it and really sunk her teeth into it. And she's got, we've now got a, we've got about 15 to 20 participating restaurants for the UK's inaugural Goatober. Um, they're not all in London, uh, the majority of them are. We've got uh, one in Manchester, uh, we've got a couple in Tunbridge Wells, uh, we've got a couple in uh, Bristol, and uh, the River Cottage canteens are all going to do it. Um, we've got um, the ETN group, who have got 12 pubs, 15 pubs across the UK are going to do it. Um, and they're all going to, like I said, they're all going to put a goat dish on uh, throughout the month of November, and we're having a launch 
on October the 5th at the Jug Hair in Barbican, which is in pub. And we've got six chefs together, and they've all they've all done a goat fish, um, and we're going to have a silent auction, and Action Against Hunger are going to take the proceeds from the night. Um, and again, it's just one of those things for us to try and tell people that there is this amazing product out there that is available, um, and the sort of story behind it, that it's a British product on British farms, you know, that it's uh, in the British slaughterhouses, manufactured in, in British manufacturing plants. So it's a contribution to British farming, which again, doesn't always have the best reputation. But now the, the, far, the sort of UK dairy industry and the farming is working sort of closer and closer with us and with other producers to try and solve the problem. So Kotoga really is, is trying to publicise the British goat meat industry. And I've been very clear from the start that it's not just about Cabrito and what we do. It's open to anybody that produces goat meat or any restaurant or any bar or any food producer that wants to feature goat. Use hashtag goat which we've taken with consent of Heritage Foods. Um, and just get involved, you know. Don't, don't wait for us to tell you how to do it. Just look at the, the hashtag, see what we do, and take it. And I'm hopeful that any, any goat producer out there will I'm really keen that it doesn't become you know, an annual PR exercise for us because I just think it's doomed to fail, if that's the case. You know, if it ends up just being us that does it, the world is cynical enough to just think it's all about goat, it's all about Cabrito and their goat sales. What I'd like it to be is all the goat producers getting together and all of the and as many restaurants that, that feature goat on their menus to do it in October and just try and publicise this brilliant meat. And like I said earlier on about when Jeremy Lee could do right at the beginning, it, it, it takes away that how do I can go problem, but it also gives it kudos that from that cook that allows us to sort of just say, it's not just for currying, it's not just for steaming, it's not difficult to cook, it's really accessible, and it's damn tasty. Because, I mean, one of, one of the truths of Cabrito is that all the ethics in the world don't matter if it tastes like doesn't taste very good. I'm about to swear that again. I'm cutting out. Um, all the ethics in the world don't matter if it doesn't taste very good, but it tastes delicious, and that's why it's got a future. You know, we could talk about how ethical it is to eat it, and if it's horrible, you can send it over. But it is an amazing thing to eat. It's really tasty, and the more people that try it, the more people will have, hopefully, that will try it themselves and find a local supplier or buy it online or do whatever how you do it. And each person that contributes to the to the the bit of problem going away. Right? So I think that that's what goes over that. It's a PR stunt, but it's not just a PR stunt for us. It's a PR stunt for the, for the, the good of goat. <laughs> for, the good, for the good of goat. Yeah, and for British farming, and, you know, and also for cooks like you, who, who just go, wow, there's this cool new thing that I can put on my barbecue, which I've never done before. You know, you might be getting bored of just, you know, whatever it is you're doing, beer can of chicken. Right, we've done that. Uh, you know, whole pork boys have done that. And, you know, it's all that stuff. Oh, this is a new thing that I can try. And that's quite exciting, you know. That's, it's, a, it's a good thing for consumers as well. Because it's a whole new protein They can just dig in. I'm going to get involved, yeah. Goat-tober. Yeah, definitely. I think I reckon we should even do, do a, goat, I mean, a Goat-tober video special or something. Yeah, we'll do a Goat-tober something. Goat and we're going to get, get involved. I might change it to yeah, I mean, Goat-tober fest, though, and drink loads of beers as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, go and beer, there you go. Go to Mescal, that'll work. <laughs> <laughs> I think 
is a uh, is made from the whey of cow's milk, and it's produced on one of the farms that produces goat for us. So we're going to try and get to uh, a vodka cocktail, a goat over cocktail. So there wow. is news coming about about goat over. You've got to be so kidding me. You go kidding me. There you go. We have to get some puns in somewhere. He's been working on that all day. Uh, yeah, the, well, I, I, there is. There aren't many left that I haven't heard of. But the, um, <laughs> but yeah, the the goat, yeah, the, the sort of the the goat over thing is a very silly name, but it's a very good idea. And my hope for it is that it will become sort of an annual thing where sort of industry gets together and tries to do some events and just to remind people that there's a, there's a good reason why you should eat this thing. All year round. It's a, awesome. It's a great product. It's a good new story. I mean, like I said before, the, the, the dual purpose nature of the goat being that's an amazing thing. Fantastic. Right. Well, we are at the hour mark, so I am going to jump in there and put I an end. You, we could... I told you, just pull the cord and I'll talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, we were just saying, listen, is. <laughs> It's really interesting. Okay, yeah, it's, nice it's, listening to a podcast. I forgot. Right? I was talking so much. I forgot you were there. I thought I was just talking to myself. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a number of times I've been out and I just get a little nudge in the ribs. Well, no, no, but it's it's all about educating, and and I feel that I've learned. Yeah, I've learned loads. Today. So so fantastic. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Anytime, guys. Anytime. I look forward to the Goatober video podcast. Uh, let me know and I'll, I'll hook you up with some goats for sure. Yippee. Awesome. Yes. Wicked. We'll get a wood. Yeah, we'll definitely do a few bits. It'll be fantastic. Looking forward to it already. So thank you very much, mate. Thanks, Cheers guys. for coming on. Cheers. And we'll thanks wear... for having me on. No worries, no, thanks, thanks for coming on, mate. Speak to you soon. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. 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 Thanks for tuning in, guys. We've recorded yet another awesome podcast to get you over hump day. As always, we're brought to you by ProQ Barbecue Gourmet and Smoke with Shack, our epic sponsors. And ProQ's dedicated to providing you with quality smoking products with top-notch service and free advice for beginners to pitmasters. And you can find them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under ProQ Smokers. So if you think about buying your first smoker or looking to upgrade or even looking to pick up some epic accessories, check them out over at Max Barbecue. And Barbecue Gourmet is devoted to promoting real barbecue and supplying the UK and Europe with top championship-winning barbecue rubs, sauces, marinades, and accessories from around the world and the United States. And you can find them on Twitter and online under Barbecue Gourmet. So regardless of how you cook, whether it's on charcoal, wood, gas, or electric, the real taste of barbecue can be yours all around. Just in case I confuse you there, the United States is part of the world. So yeah. I meant to say from the US and around the world. But anyway, so uh, also we have the amazing, awesome, legendary Smokewood Shack. Uh, Smokewood Shack delivers quality smoking wood every time they provide the smoking goodness and you provide the talent so if you're looking for smoking wood chunks dust chips or planks then head on over to smokewoodshack.com and you can find them on twitter at smokewoodshack and uh, so goodbye from me and goodbye from me ciao see you ciao. later i'm gonna cook goat better than you <laughs> <laughs> i genuinely was just like to say things same thing but mike obviously guys when it comes when we both cook goat my goat recipe is going to be about a million times no, better no. than Ben's. So you, you probably just want to ignore his and just cook mine. Anyway, catch you soon. He's just, he's Ciao for now. I'm the best cook by.